Hi everyone, this is Corina. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Lisa Talia Moretti, digital sociologist and one of the speakers at the Anthropology and Technology Conference happening online on the 9th and 12th of October. We talked to Lisa about the intersection of ethics and technology. As a digital sociologist, she researches the intersection between computer, theory and social life as she approaches technology as a social system in itself rather than a product inside a system. How does this approach shape Lisa's work? What are some of the major breakthroughs this system has gone through in the last decade? What are the most pressing issues created by technology and how to prevent dehumanization? Next to these questions, we also explore others, like what's the difference between Tinder and ads in a newspaper, and how did we get so comfortable with getting into cars with strangers on Uber. Lastly, Lisa also gives a sneak preview of her conference talk and shares her personal motivation for attending it. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with Lisa Talia Moretti, um, digital sociologist and one of the speakers at the Anthropology and Technology Conference happening in a few weeks' time. Hi Lisa. Hi, how are you? Good. I was uh, just telling you earlier, it's very, very early in Amsterdam, but even earlier where you are. <laughs> <laughs> it's rather early, but not to worry. This is uh It's been a really wonderful uh, reason for me to get out of bed to be able to speak to you this morning. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm usually a morning person. My brain works better in the mornings than in the evenings, if, especially if I have like a strong coffee. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, let's 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 start this. Um, can you tell me and our listeners before we dive into kind of like the content part of this talk? Um, Tell me a little bit about your path. Uh, what's been like so far? Um, what and what encouraged your present focus on digital sociology? Yeah, of course. Um, it's one of my favorite questions to to answer. So I guess one of the first things uh, before I dive into it is just to define uh, digital sociology for people. So I think lots of people ask me this. Um, uh, so you know, what do you do? And I say digital sociologist, and they say, sorry. Could you say that again? Um, so for me, digital sociology is all about understanding or coming to know and, um, society in new ways. Um, and I do that by studying what emerges at the intersection of computing, media, social theory and social life. And how did I come to that? Well, I actually started um, in journalism in South Africa and I was working in the digital space and I just found it really interesting watching and seeing the kinds of stories that people were interacting with. And I became really fascinated with why do people read the things that they read and why do people behave the way that they behave online? <laughs> and I was just fascinated by these two questions and, and I decided that I really wanted to kind of get into into the weeds of these two questions. And so I've, I was looking for a master's degree that I could do. 
And I landed up finding um, a master's, an MA and an MSc degree that was being offered at Goldsmiths University of London. Um, and it was in digital sociology. And that was my introduction to, to the topic. And so I thought, I have to do this. Um, and so I landed up doing the degree and uh, landed up um, receiving an MSc in digital sociology. And it was during that time where I was at Goldsmiths and really able to explore the way that society is impacting upon these different systems. Uh, I'm sorry, the way that technology is impacting upon society and our different social systems. And I was really able to interrogate that a lot more. And it was during that time that I really started my, my mental model about what I think of technology started to shift. And I started to stop seeing technology so much as a product or a series of products. But I started to see technology far more as a system. And so now in my work, I kind of always tell people I don't just research tech products, but I actually research technology as a system and then see how that system of technology intersects with the different other social systems in which we live our lives. So, you know, that might be the system of knowledge or you know, the system of power or it might be gender or race or whatever it is. So, uh, yeah, so that's what I, uh, how I got there. What do I do now? So I wear many hats. Um, so I am working currently uh, as a digital sociologist uh, at the Ministry of Justice, uh, working specifically on the lasting power of attorney service. Uh, I am also an associate lecturer at Goldsmiths, uh, University of London. So I've gone back to university where I teach now um, and I teach digital research methods and design thinking to the master's students. And then I'm also an associate lecturer at Plymouth University and I do some teaching at Cardiff University too. Oh, wow. You do so much. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit busy, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Any, any, any tips on how you, how you manage to keep all these balls rolling? <laughs> It's very important to, to think about. I, I always think about my day in segments. I'm trying yeah. to think about my day in blocks. I, I think it's, you, you get less done if you try to multitask and it's far mm. better if you segment your day and just focus on one thing at a time. And even if it's just for a short amount of time, you land up actually getting more done if you're focused on doing one thing in half an hour as opposed to trying to do two or three things in that half an hour. So yeah. that's my, my that's my big tip if um, if you're a busy person is um, be very strict with how you segment your time. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Huh? I experimented using the Pomodoro method uh, as, oh, a, as a way yes. to kind of like check my uh, my uh, time slots. And it, on some things, it really speeds you up. And uh, no. Thank you, Lisa. It's a great tip. <laughs> um, I uh, I wanted to ask you. You you've mentioned this a little bit in in your introduction, but also I see it in in your work. Um, you emphasize the importance to be critical of technology, as it doesn't always um, end up, uh, you know, being the 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 savior to everything, um, as it's heralded sometimes. No. <laughs> um, What do you see as the most pressing issues or challenges creating by technology and, and why? Yes, this is a great question. So I think one of the first most pressing issue is that people like to be quite deterministic when it comes to technology. They have a problem and they think that technology is going to fix it. Uh, and so I think we need to be really mindful um, 
that and and also a little bit more imaginative and creative in how we solve problems. You know, technology can be a solution to many things, but it might not be the solution to everything. And we must try not to be so deterministic um, in our problem-solving efforts. Um, and so I think that's a huge challenge because people just want to sometimes create technology or use technology for technology's sake rather than changing perhaps a process or changing the people who are in the room or, you know, thinking about the problem from a slightly different angle. They tend to want to just put a screen in front of people and say, great, we've solved it now. Yeah. What, what do you think this comes from, this this kind of, you know, desire to build uh, for technology rather than with technology? I, that's a really um interesting question that you've asked me. <laughs> um, I think what happens is that people, like all trends, and the, when we see a trend in motion and we see something or a trend responding well to a particular challenge, we we want to jump on that trend. And um, and when there's hype around something, we all get caught up in the hype and we all start to believe that same narrative. And I think what becomes quite difficult is when there are lots of people who believe the same thing, mm. it becomes quite difficult to be the, the single lone dissenting voice in, the, yeah. in that. We don't, we don't like to be ostracized by the group. And so I think... There is a trend at the moment to say that technology is a sort of panacea to many, many social ills, to many mm. problems that we have in society. And to for somebody to be that single person to come out and say, well, actually, technology might not be the answer. Maybe we need to do things differently. I think that can be quite a scary position for somebody yeah. to, to question the the narrative that so many believe in. And so I think that is one of the challenges is that we perhaps have too many people believing that this is the solution. And it's quite hard to go against that when, when you feel like you do not have a bigger support behind you. Mm. Um, as humans, we don't like to be ostracized from the group. We like to actually blend into the group and we like to make sure that you know, we are with the tribe as opposed to, you know, singled out from the tribe. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the other major um, issues, uh, pressing issues that uh, technology has created is that there's a huge amount of power that's just in six companies. Mm. So I think, you know, if you think about the FANG with the M at the end, so Facebook, um, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, you know, there's a huge amount of power that those six uh, companies have, and they are essentially, you know, the technology elite in the world, and they rule and they govern so much of what we do online. And it's very difficult if you are trying to work outside of that, those, uh, the technology elite ecosystem to do so. You know, many journalists have tried to live without Amazon, for instance, and actually it's very difficult to cut that particular brand out of your life, even if you don't subscribe to Amazon Prime or shop on their websites, because they own so much of the infrastructure that the internet is run on, like servers and cloud and all of that sort of thing. 
Um, but also they influence our, you know, our politics and our government and they have an impact on our democracy. And, you know, just in terms of looking at some of what uh, was reported on The Guardian last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from January to November last year, Facebook um, employed 68 uh, federal lobbyists and 12 in-house employees um, and 56 um from what they call these K Street firms. And mm. they had a huge impact on that. So when Mark Zuckerberg was placed in front of Congress, there were, you know, a number of lobbyists who were um working with, with members of Congress. Um so you when you hear those numbers, it's enormous, right? When Facebook spends something like twelve million on federal lobbying, that's huge in a single year. And so you think about the impact that those this technology elites actually have on our democracies and have on our political systems, our governments, and you know you really realise um, how powerful powerful they are. Yeah, yeah. I, I you you are touching on two of my personal favourite topics to dive into. So it's it's really hard to kind of now go into the content of these topics <laughs> and and just focus on there. I just wanted to say, you know, what, what, what also comes to mind for me is it's, it's the deterministic, because you've mentioned determinism huh, as, as one of the, one of the challenges. But I think there's also a form of determinism in how technology conceptualizes reality, you know, like yes. the, the binarity of building code. Uh, so I think that is something that it's very interesting to explore because it's also where you can more easily see the failures of technology um, when you actually you know, you hail it as this answer and then you put it into practice and then you have a binary um, algorithm that 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 uh, conceptualize something but doesn't manage to solve it because it's based on a premise of determinism that is not really how life works around that particular topic, you know? Yes, or absolutely. Inter- yeah, yeah, I think technology likes to, you know, if you think about code and how it works on these logics, you know, mm-hmm. yes and no is, uh, is you know, to two of the options it would like to work with most. And that's not really how the human world is. It's messy and there's nuance and there's lots of shades of gray. <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, like the inherent, because you, the second point that you were mentioning in power, uh, it's a very, very uh, interesting concept to apply also to um, topics such as uh, gender and ethnicity. If you look at the people that actually build the technology, not just the companies that employ them, but they are, they are overwhelmingly white uh, men. Um, and therefore, you know, the lens by which they build that technology automatically also reflects that, you know? Absolutely. Being in those positions of privilege and power and how it's also um, a lack of diversity in thought. Mm. So I think so many of these people have had very similar life experiences, gone to the same kinds of schools, gone to yeah. the same kinds of universities, hung out with mm-hmm. people who have, you know, conform or have confirmed their worldviews back to them time and time again. And uh, and then they all start to think the same. So not only do they all look the same, um, but they all start to think the same. And once again, you kind of get to that problem where you – you're all trying to think about solving a solution in almost exactly the same way. So there's yeah. a lack of diversity of thought, um, too, in addition to lack of diversity across uh, gender and uh, racial lines. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of bridging towards my next question, but I would just wanted to mention that this, I think this also lack of diversity coupled with the 
problems that they are trying to solve where diversity doesn't help. Um, it's, it's also, I think, starting a kind of this wave of ethics and morality uh, to be more, more used as concepts in, in these companies. Like, I know Kathy Baxter from, from Salesforce, she works a lot with ethics. And it fascinates me when I, when I see, for example, in my feed, uh, designers or developers starting to explore this world of equality, ethics, morality. What does it mean? You know? Mm. Um, I'm not sure if you also in your field, um, see the same, um, uh, kind of resurgence or, or not? Yeah, absolutely. We are definitely seeing, uh, a resurgence of, you know, discussing these topics like, you know, how is technology changing? Is this piece of technology good? Is this, you know, has this been technology being created with what many people are calling moral imagination? Yeah. Um, we're definitely seeing a lot of these topics being spoken about in organizations. Um, but I would go as far to say that while there's a lot of conversation happening, I don't know if there's very much doing Action, taking yeah. place. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's hard, right? Uh, though to, to kind of turn this concept into something doable. But I, I, coming back to this, I think, you know, your work focuses so much on, on these human voices. Like how can you enable these human voices when you are understanding, choosing and creating technology? Um, and, and what do you think are the biggest obs ob obstacles in kind of enabling um, these human voices? Where, where do you and where and why do you face strong opposition around that? If you face it, huh? maybe you don't. No, I definitely. So I face it less now um, than I used to. But certainly one of the, the biggest challenges um, uh, that I used to face was just getting hired. Mm. was just being able to say to people that this is important and you need to spend money on it. Mm. Um, and, you know, so what were the biggest obstacles? The biggest obstacles were time and money and being heard, really. Mm. So when you are wanting to do this kind of work, you have to include, and you sort of touched on this already, more voices other than your own. More mm. voice, You have to bring external voices in. Mm. So, you know, I think we have become really terrible in the technology industry by taking this word customer and degrading it further to the word user. And so when you work in technology companies or work on a technology product, we always talk about users, users, users. And we don't, many people working on those teams don't actually meet the people who are actually using their technology. And so you need to take the time and the money to hire a professional to actually go and speak to your customer base and the people who are going to be using this technology. But I think more than that, you also need to think about the system in which these people are living their lives. You know, they are not just isolated, siloed individuals. And uh, what we tend to forget in the technology industries is, you know, we're not just changing one person's behavior. We're changing individual behavior en masse. And when you do that, you need to be really mindful about how you're changing that behavior. Because if you change group behavior, collective behavior, you have a huge impact potentially on culture. And so, you know, it's we need to think a little bit broader than this individual user. I think one of the other things that's really challenging that goes along with that is just making the case for it. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, saying to people why it's important. So when you are trying to convince someone, you know, that to take the time to spend the money to do this work, you have to put quite a big argument together. And yes, that is changing. That is absolutely changing. More and more people are hiring digital anthropologists or anthropologists and ethnographers and user researchers on their, on their technology teams. Um, but it's, it's only been recently, I would say that this has started mm-hmm. to become a much bigger trend in the technology industry where these people are starting to be hired, but also to come back to power, actually be given the power to speak and the power to actually implement the research that they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's, uh, it's, it's all very well and good hiring people who can do the research, but then giving them very limited amounts of opportunity to actually implement what they're finding or to negotiate so much on their findings that it's almost becomes a moot point and, you know, almost becomes irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's also important. What's the intention that, that puts a researcher on a trail of research, right? Mm-hmm. Is it an intention of just optimizing that, that, that's what we, you call, um, degraded relationship of user through the, through the magical words user experience? <laughs> um, are there bigger questions that are behind that calling? You know, because so often I see in myself, you know, uh, when I was a, a freelancer working in the technology space that, um, I had to kind of like start a project or open the door through this kind of smaller questions of user experience mm-hmm. and then try to bring in uh, bigger questions around morality of product development um, or ethics of data and privacy, um, which ultimately talks about the relationship uh, that you want to build with, through your product with the world. Um, but I, I use the experience part as a kind of a door opener for this bigger question that I try to uh, put on the table. But I found, um, you know, the, the most beautiful projects um, happened for me when on the other side of the table, I had somebody as engaged with these bigger questions that I was. And then comes the harder part. How do you put that into action? How do you how, how do you build a moral digital bank? Um, <laughs> how does that look like? How do you uh, design for uh, complete data transparency? <laughs> uh, but but I mean, I think before that, before the challenge of changing your product comes the intention and yeah, uh, and the belief that that's important, you know? It's a really, really good point that you make, absolutely. And I think one of the things that we need to do as researchers is be really clear on our definitions You know, because somebody might say, I'm hiring you because I want to make this product better, you know, and I always say, well, what do you mean by better? Define better for me. And I think we need to, um, I think as researchers and as social scientists, we're starting to get a lot more power in the technology industry. And, you know, and I think taking the time to, in those very early stages, like you're saying, like uncover the intention and actually uncover the possibility that, um, is behind this research project and, yeah. um, and being really open and transparent with results. You know, I always say when I'm working on project teams, I'm probably not going to be able to come up with a definitive answer for you because the world isn't like that and people aren't like that. There will be mm-hmm. these, you know, um, topics or ideas or themes that sit in the spectrum and we need to be able to work on that spectrum. 
Yeah, I, but I love I love your point around the intention. It's so important. Yes. What What do you What do you think, Lisa, from your own experience? What are some things that you do to get people to stop looking at other people as just users? So it's all about education, and it's all about changing the way that you talk about technology, and also changing the way that you talk about the people who you are researching. Mm. So for me, I always talk about you know, part of my sales pitch, if you will, is to talk about this idea that technology is not just a product. When you are designing a piece of, of tech or a digital service, a digital product, you are inserting that digital product into a social system. And so we need to think about like technology as a system as opposed to this product. So for me, it's all about education and it's all about Slowly, slowly, through a, through re-education, changing somebody's mental model, and you know, challenging them on you know things like what do you mean by better? Give me. Let's talk about what better means. Let's think about like how we're going to actually define or use that term in in mm. you know the boundaries of this project. Or when you say good, you know, what do you mean by good? <laughs> yeah, um, and I think that's how you sort of start to have these really you know, difficult moral, ethical conversations is by interrogating these blanket terms that people use and have been using without necessarily considering what they actually mean. Yeah. And you start to un actually unpack a series of questions that becomes far more interesting than necessarily the research question that you came in first to solve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's also, you know, um, you're, you're talking about this, this socio-technical system um, in, in which kind of technology plays a role. Um, I, I wonder, because in the, in the last 10 years that you've been exploring this topic, that technology space has, has really fundamentally changed, also dramatically. Ah, these are not... It's, sorry for this, uh, how do you say, big words? It's, it's too early. <laughs> But, no worries. Uh, you know what I mean, right? Like, yes, I it's, do. It's, it's, it's really changed uh, quite, quite substantially. Um, I, I wonder if you, could, if you could point out to some, some of these breakthroughs that you've observed, both on a positive but also not so positive sense. Yeah, so for me, the, one of the most interesting things that happened in the world of tech was when trust became networked through technology. And I found this really interesting. You know, when I was younger, and I always give this example because it helps me sort of illustrate a larger point. When I was younger, my mom always said to me, and my parents always said to me, never get into the car with a stranger. Never, ever, ever do that. And then when I was living in London, there was this magical app that came out. And it was called Uber. <laughs> and I started to get into cars with strangers. And I really, that, that was a huge, I don't think we really realized like what a huge step that was for society, you know, and yes, we've, we've always had, um, social capital and social trust and these phenomenon that have existed within society that help us trust and, you know, bond with our fellow citizens. But this was like, on a whole new level that trust was actually networking um, or trust was being networked through these technologies. Mm -hmm. You know, and we suddenly started to, you know, open up our doors to strangers and let people live in our houses because of an app called Airbnb. You know, people started to meet other people, you know, online and, you know, 
sort of, you know, uh, sex and relationships and intimacy were being facilitated through apps. Mm. Um, and we started to introduce, you know, ourselves to one another through screens, right? So I thought that was a really interesting change, this mm. sort of way that trust moved so enormously to trusting strangers through the use of technology. Yeah. I'm curious because you were mentioning uh, that you were a journalist before kind of moving into this world. How would you see um, this topic, uh, let's say something like Tinder, be different than an ad that you would have placed in the past in a newspaper, also kind of like as a stranger? Do do you see this this kind of uh, environments in some ways similar, in some ways different? So I think the difference behind it is that that um, that ad on Tinder can become so targeted mm. based on behavior that you might mm. not even be aware of. Mm. So, you know, you might not necessarily be hugely conscious that you have a particular bias for people with blue eyes, for instance. <laughs> um, and suddenly the app is only showing you people that have blue eyes because it has noticed subconsciously that you keep doing that so i think those are the things that mm. make it so different is that it's algorithmically driven and it's picking up on millions maybe not millions but thousands of data points that you yeah. might not even be aware of and yeah. then is sending those particular people to you the ease mm. of which you can access that is so is so much uh Yeah, it's just so much easier than it used to be than having to, you know, walk to the corner shop and find the, you know, find the correct money that you have and, you know, handing that money over and then going to the, you know, there's just so many more gates in that process as opposed to, you know, just opening up an app on your phone and just starting to swipe. And it's interesting, right? An ad in the newspaper, you take it to meet somebody. That's your primary, let's say, objective. Whereas apps like this, they, they want your attention to sell your data yes. because they're basically advertising channels for your yes. data. So the, the algorithm that sits behind Tinder, I mean, you could use that algorithm uh, for good, right? You could use that algorithm for really sharpening the intention that the user had, not accentuating their compulsions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, that will not keep you on the app, which is the intention of the app in the first <laughs> place, to get your data and attention, not necessarily solve the problem. And uh, maybe I'm just being too binary about it, but I think, yeah, ultimately, this is a kind of like the rotten worm at the center of products like Google or, or Facebook that I think inherently they, they do, they can do also a lot of good. But if the intention behind the development is retention, Mm. Um, then of course, and, and data, um, then it will end up a product accentuating your compulsions and, and kind of like stimulating your darkest pleasures and fears and not. Yeah, absolutely. Because the entire, the, all of the mechanisms and the product get mm. fine tuned to meet that need, right? That the company has, not necessarily yeah. the need that the person has, right? So, um, yeah, so it, it, yes, exactly to that, to your point. Um, but I think what's quite interesting about this trust in strangers is that we're now seeing that changing. Mm. So we're now seeing, so there was some really interesting research that was done by Ipsos, uh, survey data that was done last year. And, uh, 
we can now see that across the world, nearly two thirds um, of people say that they are mistrusting of information that they have received from people who they know predominantly through the Internet. So this trust in strangers is um, actually changing now, again, as a result of technology. You know, with the very ease and proliferation that misinformation and can be shared online and disinformation can be created and given a platform. And certain powerful people in the world repeating the phrases fake news. And, you know, we can start to see how this is actually impacted upon what people trust online and who people now trust online. So where technology allowed trust to become networked and now technology is causing trust to sort of dissipate really online and people are not so trusting anymore of information no. that they receive from strangers. And then we're going back to your brother's words and you're not going to go back go into that Uber car. <laughs> <laughs> um Lisa, I, I wanted to, my next question is also one of my major um, favorite topics and, and also the uh, kind of like the concept that sits at the center of Simon Roberts' latest book. I'm, I'm not sure if, if, you, if, you've, uh, if you know it, but um, how do you prevent the dehumanization that comes with living less embodied lives? I think, you know, it's a big question. I was going to say that is a, <laughs> that is a big question for yeah. some of Yeah, yeah, it's a serious question. But, you know, I mean, maybe not how to prevent it, but but do you also see it? Or, uh, do you experience it? You know? Yes. Um. You know, it's quite interesting this, that you bring this up because um when I I did I was very fortunate to be given the opportunity to do a TEDx talk, and I and it was last year, and After the talk, I had somebody come up to me and say to me, I just wanted to say thank you so much for voicing that because for so long I have been feeling that technology doesn't understand me and that it doesn't necessarily see me for who I am. It was a really interesting conversation to have because this person was essentially talking about this very thing that she felt as if technology had dehumanized her and hadn't really been able to put words around that. How do we prevent that? Well, I think we well, we can start trying to prevent that by getting people to think more critically about the products and services they're creating. I think we can prevent that by being more mindful about the impact that technology has on society You know, not just trying to become obsessively counting clicks or, you know, sessions or visitors to our website, but we need to become much better at measuring the real impact that we're having in the world and then trying to, trying to be critical about is that the impact that we want to have? And if it isn't the impact we want to have, well, how do we need to change? How do we need to pivot into a better direction? I think there also needs to be a much more um, sort of ongoing citizen education that needs to take place at sort of a greater societal level, not just in universities, not just in schools. But there needs to be some kind of like ongoing education where people are educated about the role that these different technologies are playing in their lives. And if they are feeling in certain ways, these are the steps that they can do in their own way um, or on their own 
to mitigate some of that feeling and to mitigate some of those risks. Mm. But I think we need to be reminded of our own power that we can switch it off at the end of the day. We can pull the plug out the wall and we can step away from that and we can, you know, go for a run or meet our friends. And, well, maybe not meet our friends instead <laughs> right now at the moment in the middle of a pandemic. But, you know, we can we can do other things that don't involve technology. And I think that people just sometimes need to be reminded about that power um, and mm. to take, yeah. yeah, to kind of reconnect to themselves. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, you know, this weekend, my, my favorite jean shop um, online uh, that hasn't had any of my favorite jeans in now a few weeks. So last weekend, I, I, I went for the first time, I think, in years to a physical space to buy jeans, <laughs> a physical. And it was like such an extraordinary experience, to be honest, because I I haven't been in a shop in so long. But, you know, the experience of just going in a shop, checking something, uh, uh, trying it on then paying it, uh, asking for advice. It, it almost feel like, felt like some kind of a luxury, but also very speedy. And I said, when the technology became like synonymous for efficiency in time, like going online and buying and waiting for it to come home. <laughs> so it, it, it's so interesting how these things get so normalized. And then something that maybe years ago would have seemed so natural now is like something new, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm really, I'm really pro trying, um, just from reminding ourselves often that, mm-hmm. you know, the real world is out there, the offline world is out there. And like you, you know, perhaps try a new experience and actually do it in person as opposed to through a screen. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy to, to realize that it is not your normal, that, that you're has become another normal and it's just so insidious and and slow and the way that process happens yeah yeah for sure Lisa I wanted to because we only have a few um, minutes left so I wanted to kind of like um, talk a little bit about the conference how how did you um, end up uh, participating like what's what's your intention behind um, attending oh so I am trying to remember how I landed up hearing about the A&T conference. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm, I met Dawn at an event and I got chatting to her there that way. And then she came to a, um, a workshop that I was running and which was in Copenhagen uh, called Tech Festival. And I got invited that way and I just love this idea of bringing the social scientists into the conversation with technology mm. and having an entire conference just on that topic, talking about, you know, this intersection between tech and society and the impact that that has on our lives. And, you know, when we talk about society, I think it's so interesting to, to do it from these multiple angles, you know, from a sociological angle, from a psychological mm. angle, from an anthropological angle, and, you know, to use those different lenses to really interrogate the industry of technology and the system of technology. So I'm thrilled to be part of this group of people and thrilled to be speaking at the conference this year. It's totally yeah. my bag. <laughs> <laughs> for, for, for those of our listeners that are already kind of like um, planning to come, you, anything that you can share from, from, from what you will be speaking about or... Yes. So yeah. um, what I'm going to be talking um, a little about, a little bit about is um, how to turn ethical principles and frameworks into action. 
So as we've already touched on, there has, um, over the last few years, there have been so many people who have been, you know, from companies to governments and councils and working groups, membership organizations, who have all been sort of like in a flurry about writing about mm-hmm. ethical principles and guidelines. And but if you are a practitioner, how do you actually implement this? You know, what are the actual methodologies that you can use, the different processes that you can use to actually place, put these um, principles and uh, guidelines into action in your own work. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to be talking about that. So it's the talk is sort of geared towards those who are looking for practical advice on how to take that next step on how to implement ethics in the work that they're doing. Um, And also, um, you know, to give them a new language um, and a new vocabulary and mental model to introduce into the workplace. So a lot of what I've been talking about about, um, around systems, thinking in systems, um, you know, and just thinking about where systems intersect with one another. Mm. Um, So, yes, hopefully that will be interesting to people and we will have lots of people arriving. (laughs) Yeah. And Lisa, for, for those of our listeners that are kind of like still contemplating, uh, investing time in joining, um, what, what would you, what would you say? Like, why should you come to this conference instead of doing 10,000 other things? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that you should come to this conference because it, it is going to be presented from an angle that you hardly ever hear about. Mm. And I think instead of you know, uh, if you go to a big, you know, if you go to these big conferences that deal with a multitude of different topics, you might have one or two speakers that are talking about the mul- the reason um, social scientists need to be involved in technology. And you know, that you will, if you come to this conference, you will hear every single speaker talking about how important it is to bring in multidisciplinary individuals, um, especially those coming from a social science perspective. And if you have ever felt like you have been singled out or are alone in your way of thinking, come to this conference and you will meet lots of like-minded people because we are all trying to change uh, things to, so that technology can become more human and more aware of the human experience. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Karina. I really, really do. Thank you. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.